This is the Stanford's podcast at the Stanford's Travel Writers Festival at destinations in Olympia. Thank you for coming. Please take a seat, Chris. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Sir Christian Bonington. Chris, we've not really had time to prepare. Um, I read with, I've read every word of Ascent and I've loved it. Many congratulations. This is a spectacularly good book. My first question is very brief. I noted with interest around page 200 that you once climbed the wrong mountain. How are you on directions? <laughs> I am actually... In- it is. Point it at your mouth. I am actually incredibly good at getting lost and (laughs) always have been. And so it's nothing new. Uh, This one, though, I've also always been incredibly bad at looking at my diary, which is, you know, iCal on my computer. And it was all there, totally by mistake. And I'd completely forgotten about it. And actually, um, I'd I'd gone to to mass with with Loretta, my wife. And there, I'd I'd, I'd gone to switched the um, iPhone off as well. So that went on in the middle of Mass. So I'd switched that off and I didn't check it. So my sincere apologies. But no, I've frequently got lost and I've frequently climbed the wrong mountain. It it matters not, Chris. We are delighted to have you here. I've been so looking forward to seeing you. Uh, And you have lots of fans here, not least Nicholas Crane, who told a lovely story earlier on about having saved up his pocket money to buy Everest South Face. Well, he's a great guy as well. We have, uh, he is a great guy. We have about 20 minutes to chat. We have a chance for a few questions. Are you happy for me to crack on? Delighted, yep. Let's Let's go for it. Um, Well, let's start with Snowdonia. You write beautifully, in a sense, about Snowdonia and Snowden at the beginning of your career and then more latterly. What does Snowdonia represent to you? Snowden and Snowdonia is really my... It's basically the, yeah, the roots of my climbing life. Um, you know, I was a, a young lad, and I, I, my grandfather uh, had retired to Ireland. He was German, but had worked for the British all his life, married an English lass, changed his name from Bonig to Bonington at the start of the First World War. And he was in good company, because that was the time that the Saxe-Coburg-Gotas changed their name to Windsor. But anyway, he retired to Dublin, and I'd go and stay with him um, in the summer holidays. And, of course, in those days, it was just at the end of the war, but you're going across the, the Irish Sea and going back down Leary to Holyhead. And then it was in the train going back around the northern side of the, um, the country, the the mountains of um, Snowdonia. And it wasn't so much Snowden itself that captured my imagination. It was the way the valleys went into the, well, the, the hills of the Carnedi. And I, I thought well, it'd be great to go and climb Snowden. And I persuaded uh, a mate of mine at school, one Anton, uh, to come with me. Uh, so we were 16 at the time. Uh, our parents were absolutely amazing. My mum was a single parent, but she let me go, and uh, she actually cut down my school mac to make it look like an anorak, and, and I'd gone out and bought a pair of hobnail boots. Anton just had his school mac and his school shoes, and we hitchhiked up to Snowdonia, to Capel Keurig, and the first time you see Snowden is when you come round the corner, and it's uh, Placid Brennan, the National Outdoor Centre, that 
time it was the Royal Hotel. And that view, looking across this lake towards Snowdon, is magical. It, it, was a, it was depth of winter, one of the hardest winters for years, and just seeing that magnificent peak. And then we got to the um, car park at what was the Penny, um, the Penny Pass Hotel, which now is uh, a youth hostel. And um, we very nearly turned back. It was actually snowing. You couldn't see the tops of the mountains, and they were plastered in snow. And we were hoping to go up the pig track, which was completely covered. And then there was a couple of guys with ropes and ice axes. We thought, well, they must know what they're doing. So we followed them. We got about halfway up, and we were avalanched off. And it was a full-blown good avalanche. And you're about five or 600 feet at least above um, the, the lake and everything else. So we'd gone a long way and we swept down and got to the bottom. And I just found it incredibly exciting. We kind of picked ourselves up. We were lucky that the story didn't end there. If we'd gone over a cliff, we'd have probably been killed. And, um, and then the experts turned back, so we turned back. We are staying in the youth hostel at Capel Keurig. And the very next morning, Anton hitchhiked back to London, never to go into the mountains again. <laughs> and I was totally hooked. You know, this was, in a way, this is what adventure is all about. It's the excitement of risk and everything else. And then I found someone who'd done a bit of climbing, took me climbing, and it all began there. It all began there. It's a great start. You've... I mean, what I love about how you've written Ascent is it's not just the diarised timeline catalogue of summits that you've reached the top of, attempts, and all that sort of stuff. You are very... Be you write beautifully elegantly about the people you have climbed with. And they're the greats. There's Joe Brown, there's Doug Scott, there's Messler, there's so many of them. As you were writing this and looking back at all these fantastic characters, those both living and those we have sadly lost, can you try and summarise, it's a terrible question to ask you, Chris, but can you summarise what it is, because they're all different personalities, but is there a common thread of what makes a great mountaineer, a great climber? I think what, what, you know, what makes a great mountaineer is, I think, that sense of adventure and that desire to push the limits to the absolute extreme, to go to the, the ceiling of whatever is the abilities of that time. Um, it's also, I think, to be an explorer and to go on to new ground and go to do new things. And therefore, it's a natural evolution as for me. I mean, I started, I couldn't even imagine climbing in the Alps. I mean, I was still at school. I was brought up in Hampstead. And uh, my mum couldn't afford to go abroad. But in, back in 1951 anyway, things were still difficult to do so. I then, uh, I went, I ended up going to Sandhurst. So I decided to make a military career. That at least took me to um, Germany. And, and so on it went. But also, I think the, the people, and in writing the book, I find people fascinating. And I've always been interested in people. I like reading about people. I read a lot of autobiographies and biographies. And I think that it's therefore getting, writing about the people you've had the privilege to actually climb with. And I mean, also the other thing, I've never actually been on um, a climbing course of any kind whatsoever. But I was incredibly lucky with the really brilliant climbers I actually climbed with. And the very first one was Hamish McInnes, 
And he, he at the time, was uh, one of the best all-round mountaineers in Scotland, in Britain, probably, at that time. And he was in his mid-twenties, um, nearly 10 years older than me. And um, I just stumbled across Hamish. We were staying in the same hut, and there was no one else to climb with. And so Hamish took me, and he took me up what was one of the most, the hardest climb at that time in Scotland. It was um, first winter ascent of Raven's Gully. So, and he was a great character. And then, once I got to Germany, I was at last able to reach the Alps when I was stationed in Munster in North Germany. And I wrote Hamish and said, look, how about, can we go climbing this summer? I got a postcard ooh, a few days later saying, yes, certainly, meet me in Grindelwald. We're going for the North Wall of the Eiger. And I sort of, I mean, I should have known, you know, that is not a good idea as your first ever climb. But I, I rather thought, well, oh, that's a good way of starting a climbing career. And it's only when I got to Grindelwald and saw this huge face in front of me, ten times bigger than anything I'd ever done before, that, you know, this was a much more serious thing to do and I should get out of it. But Hamish was enthusiastic, and we actually went down the, lo the lower slopes of the Eiger, and fortunately, the weather s seemed to be threatening, so we pulled off. But we went on climbing together. And then the following year, I met Don Willans for the first time. And Don Willans, with Joe Brown, probably the two most important mountaineers and climbers uh, in, in Britain's climbing history. And they also represented a, an almost revolution of young working-class lads being able to go out and climb. And before the war, it was very much a middle-class kind of sport. And in a way, for working-class lads, it was a six-day week. There was very little money. Travel was difficult. With the war, things opened up. And anyway, I did a climb by chance with Don, which ended up as a big epic. But we started climbing together, and he was the, he was probably the finest all-round climber that I've ever been climbed with. And once again, he became a fantastically important mentor. And so it went on. But all of these individuals, if you like, they had, they were pushing the limits to the absolute extreme. Um, they had very good mountaineering judgment, and I think the really good climbers were the ones that are not doing something dangerous dangerously. They're people who are not afraid of risk, because risk is the essence of climbing and adventure, but they're very well-calculated risks. Talk about risk. We... I mean, I've grown up with your name resonating through my head. I mean, you've been a great hero of mine through most of my life, and I'm not a climber. My challenges have been elsewhere. But I was intrigued to see you write in this book, and I think more so in this than any of your, of your other writing, not just about the heroism and the bravery and the challenge and, and, and the targets you set yourself, but about the emotional content, the fear, and what happens when you do feel frightened when you are worried, when you think, is this it? Is this the bad snow ledge to put the bivouac on, the rocks are falling down? Can you talk to us about how your relationship with fear has changed over the course of your climbing career? Well, I don't know. I don't think... My, well, my relationship with fear has changed in the last few years. But for most of my climbing career, 
I think fear, firstly, is something that's incredibly important to have. Never, ever go climbing with a fearless climber, because right. you'll probably get you killed. Uh, so the first thing is fear is something that says to you, this is dangerous, should I be doing it? Uh, should I go on or should I turn back? And I think it's a matter of having that sense of fear is important, and then, though, knowing how to control it. And all of, I think every adventurer is, is going to, adventure is about uh, pushing your own personal limits a tiny bit. And you can actually, I mean, anyone, I'm sure many of you, when you've been out, say, walking or scrambling in Snowdonia or in the lakes or, or wherever, have been in situations where you've got lost, the cloud is down, you're in scrambly conditions, and it's, it's frightening. And firstly, you, you, you've got to deal with it and you get through it. And being able to deal with that fear is the really important thing. Um, and I find that, especially as I got more experienced, uh, when you get into a really dangerous situation, there's no room for fear. And you're too busy. You're busy keeping yourself and your companions alive. And so that you just focus on that. And that's what fear is all about. That's incredibly well put. Are there any of the summits that you've achieved that, read, that mean more to you? Is, is the one that you think, I'm really pleased I did that. I'm sure it was nice to get to the top of the North Face Viga, good to summit Everest, of course. All this, you know, the statistical tour, it's the most difficult, that sort of stuff. But you've written beautifully about mountains, about ranges I'd never heard of, peaks I'd never heard of, in Bhutan, in Nepal, in the Himalayas, and elsewhere, in, um, in Morocco, in fact. And you write very lyrically about the joy of summiting some of these places. Well, I think, um, inevitably, I think the, the North Wall of the Eiger was a pivotal climb for me yeah. in that, making that first British ascent. Uh, gave me the opportunities after it. Because I never really imagined it would have the impact that it did. And then, um, so when I climbed the North Wall of the IGS, that enabled me to build a career around climbing and make a living lecturing, writing, doing everything I've done ever since. Um, but I think the, the other pivotal climb, I suppose, was actually leading the expedition to the southwest face of Everest, where I used all the, the skills I'd learned, both about leadership, about logistics, which always fascinated me and everything, leading a huge, big expedition. But the, the, the magic memories I have, I think, are, are different from those. I mean, one of the strongest ones I've had was when we went, I was just climbing, I was still at school, there's just two of us, and we climbed a hill called Sulvan in the far northwest highlands. And I don't know whether any of you have been to the northwest highlands, but it's incredibly beautiful. And there's these sandstone peaks that are sitting upon a bed of gneiss and rise out of this wide, open kind of country with deep sea locks going into them. And we had this incredible day of climbing Sylvan and then going along the shores of Loch Shanaskag, which is a great, wide, shallow loch below it, and bivouacking at the, the very far end of that. And that was just a magical experience of, of the beauty of the hills, of comparative unknown and everything else. And I think the other climb that I, I valued most of all was 
Um, a comparatively small peak. It's called Shivling. It's um, in the Gangotri Himalayas. And in this one, it was in 1983, and it was a, a kind of seeking some kind of catharsis after a huge loss of two dear friends, Peter Borman and Joe Tasker, on the northeast ridge of Everest, which we'd tried to climb, failed to get up, and sadly, Pete and Joe lost their lives in one last push on it. And then the next year, and this is a bit of opportunism, I suppose, which I've, I think good adventurers have got to be opportunists. And I was invited on um, a big kind of a tourism conference um, in Darjeeling. And uh, so I went on that. And I said, well, I'd go if I could also if give me a ticket for my climbing mate called Jim Fotheringham, who's our local dentist. And we, we climbed a lot together. We'd done a lot in the, the Alps together. And so we got a free ticket out there. And then we went off to climb this peak. And Shivling's a comparatively small peak. It's only 6,400 meters high. But it, <clears throat> it's a beautiful peak. And we were, it was completely spontaneous, because originally we had permission to climb another mountain. And we looked at this, and oh my god, it looks much too steep and much too difficult. So we turned back, and we saw Shivling. And we thought, well, this would be great to climb. So it's completely spontaneous. We hadn't got permission to climb it. And if anything had happened to us, we'd have vanished off the face of the earth. And which is irresponsible, I suppose. And anyway, we did it. And we just packed a rucksack at the bottom. We climbed it, what's called Alpine Star, which means you pack your rucksack and you just keep going until you get to the top. And we had five days up. And in climbing up it, we realized there's no way we could have got back down it safely. So we had to gamble on getting down the other side and we went down the other side one day down the other side it's a beautiful peak as well we got on well together there was that sense of risk of the unknown and everything else and that was the best climb I've ever done you meant so much what's your relationship how do you consider the other sort of climbers the free climbers that do it without aids without ropes there was a guy a couple of weeks ago that's just on El Capitan as a free climber it just the images looked astonishing but What's your relationship with that branch of climbing? Well, I mean, I am a, a free climber. Uh, the sense in, in our British climbing is, is, is actually almost unique in the world today. But we've always had in the British mountains the tradition that we don't hammer in pitons unless we absolutely have to. We most certainly don't drill holes and put in expansion bolts, which means that you actually accept the mountain terrain for what it is and you make as little impact onto that terrain as you possibly can. And you, you make yourself safe by You've got a great load these days of, of little metal wedges and camming devices, but you accept what the rock offers you and you jam them into your cracks and everything else, and that's how you climb. And you try not to pull on them, you try not to use artificial aids. And all of us have done, I have, but, but that is the, the aim of it. So, I mean, I was brought up on that free climbing, trad climbing tradition. Each generation, though, has got to push the bounds. Each generation has got to find different things to do, push the limits in different ways. And what some of the, the brilliant climbers of today, be they British, American, German, or what have you, are doing, are pushing those bounds to extraordinary limits. So they are 
in um, the, the, the case of, what was it, Alec Hummus, wasn't it? I think it was Alec yeah. um, He is the most amazing solo, solo climber of all time. And it, it is, he's absolutely pushing, he's climbing to the absolute limit and where a single mistake and you're dead. And, and that, if you like, is the ultimate in climbing. And he does it superlatively well. He's an incredibly modest man as well. And it's amazing. And the, there are many others, though, who are doing the same kind of thing. And that's what climbing's all about. It is what it's all about. I'm dying to get a little story out of you, so please indulge me. But I, was loved, I loved reading in Ascent of the journey you undertook with another great adventurer, but not a man known for his ability to scale a peak. Robin Knox Johnson and your lovely trip to Greenland on Suheili. How did you get on in the boat and how did Robin get on on the, on the mountain? Well, firstly, that was one of the best trips I've ever had. And, uh, and that, that was when we climbed the wrong bloody mountain. <laughs> and anyway, but... That's so no, but I'd got to know Robin uh, over the very first time, um, oh, way back in the... Um, the mid-80s, I think it was, or early 80s, when it was the Krypton Factor, and you remember, it's where you, you do both physical and mental exercises. Say so you race over an assault course, and you do intelligence tests and all this kind of stuff. And this was a charity one, and so there was Robin Knox Johnson, Rand Fiennes, uh, Doug Cameron, David Cameron, who's a very successful, brilliant balloonist, and myself. And I thought, well, that's fine. I, you know, Rand Fiennes is much younger than me, very, very fit and everything else. He'll probably win the exalt course, but, you know, I'll be right behind him. But I didn't worry about the other two at all. And when we did it, Robin Knox Johnson, the sailor, he went off like a shot, and I just couldn't keep up with him. Now, my excuse is I had just come back from a very hectic expedition, so I was very unfit and tired. But anyway... I lost that, but fortunately, when it came to the cerebral stuff, I won, and, and, and I won the little competition. But after that, we struck up a friendship, and I wrote a book called Quest for Adventure, in which I studied um, really what I felt were the major innovative adventures of the post-war era, be they climbing, sailing, polar travel, and so on. And obviously, Robin Knox Johnson, who was the first person to sail around the world non-stop, single-handed, in what became a kind of a race called the Golden Globe Race. And uh, so I'm... I wrote to him, and I, I went, literally went around the world interviewing all my adventurers. And Robin replied promptly and said, yes, he'd be delighted to have an interview. And he was going to be sailing with his wife and daughter from Oban um, in a few weeks' time. Would I like to join them? So I did. And uh, we had this wonderful sail up to um, the Isle of Skye. Once again, here, uh, my organization wasn't brilliant I'd actually forgotten to bring the map of, of the coolings and, the, and my idea was we'd actually we, we, we actually harbored in Lokarusk and then I was going to take Robin up the, the Do Ridge to the, um, the main ridge of Sky and take him along that a bit and down again and uh, I, and I hadn't got a map <laughs> That was all right. I'd been there several times before. 
but I was actually lost. And I, then we met another kind of pair of climbers in the mist on the top of the ridge. And I kind of tried to ask a series of questions to find out where we were without actually admitting the fact that I was totally lost. And anyway, we got down all right. And then some years later, uh, we got on and we became friends. And Robin then phoned me up and said, look, I've had a brilliant idea. How about we sail in the Suheili, the boat that you sail around the world in, and we'll sail across the Atlantic to Greenland, and you get me up an unclimbed peak. And it just sounded brilliant. So that's what we did. And um, it's a long story, but in the end, the unfortunate thing was, so Robin did magnificently sailing us and getting us there. And it's a challenge to get to the east coast of Greenland. There's always a lot of many ice flows, and sometimes you can't get in at all. So he got us all the way there. I knew nothing about Greenland travel. And here you get to travel and you pull, pull sledges to get in there. But a slight friend of mine had done a lot, a guy called Jim Lowther. And so, and he was very helpful, so I invited him to come along. So he was going to get us to the foot of the mountain, and then my job was to get up it. And anyway, so it all went well. We got through, we landed. Jim got us pulking up a couple of glaciers over a high pass. And you could see the mountain we were going for, and it was the highest peak of this mountain range uh, from a distance. But then, of course, as you get closer, there's intervening mountains, so you can't see it. And so finally we got right to the foot of the main mountain mass. And then we couldn't see it, and I was looking at the map, and unfortunately, Jim, who'd got, we'd got a load of aerial photographs as well of it, but he'd forgotten them, he had, he'd left them on the boat. And, well, we went and climbed the wrong mountain. <laughs> and and I, I read the map accurately, honestly. And it was the map that was wrong, not me. But, but anyway, so we climbed it in the first time, our first attempt. And it was technically, it was quite hard, and it was a rock climb. And, Robin, I mean, is amazing. His shins up and down his mast, up the rigging, just like a monkey. But he's not a natural climber. And he's clumsy and slow, but incredibly brave. And so we were going very slowly, and we'd eventually we got to a point where we got to the top of one pinnacle, and we could see that we had to do a long abseil down, sliding down the rope, to get to a column. The next one, we'd already been going for about 20 hours. So I just had to tell Robin, I'm terribly sorry. We're, this is not right for us. We're going to have to go down. And then Jim and I, a couple of few days later, we went and actually managed to climb it. And it was only when we got to the top of our peak and we could see just over there, there was a peak that was most definitely taller than the one we were on. So we climbed the wrong one. But it was still, it was the best trip I've ever had. Yeah. It was wonderful. You know, you don't, you don't need to get to the top of a mountain. And in a way, the most, the most important thing, I think, in, in any kind of climbing experience is how you got on with the people you were climbing with. And um, if that worked out, yeah, just getting to the top of the mountains, cream on top, but not important. 
I don't want to sort of unnecessarily draw you into politics in any way, but there have, it, one cannot avoid the fact that the last few years there have been a lot of sort of rumbles about Everest climbs, about the commercial climbing organisations and about the rubbish. Do you have a view on this, Chris? I've got personally, well, I actually finally got to the top of Everest in 1985 with a, a Norwegian expedition who were climbing it by the South Colne. It was a, a lovely expedition. And that was the last year that the Nepalese government only allowed one expedition on a, mountain, on, on the, on a route at a time. And that meant that we had the whole of the Western Coombe and, and Everest to ourselves. And it was fabulous. And we were, uh, you know, we were just doing the ordinary route up Everest. And we had um, about 12 Sherpas with us to help us. Um, there were 10 of us, 10 climbers. Uh, and we were working together and we reached it. And, for instance, on our summit bid day, the only time, and that's from the South Col of Everest, Camp 4 as it is, uh, to the top. And we, did, we, we didn't put a rope on. And the only place we used a rope was the Hillary Step. And we were just climbing together, got to the top, got back down. It was a wonderful, lovely expedition. And then the following year, the Nepalese, uh, and you can't blame them, because they were making no money at all out of, if you like, the most important bit of property they've got. And they're a desperately poor country. And they realized by th throwing it open and then charging, I think everyone pays about 10,000 pound or dollar tax to go on the mountain, uh, they'd make more money. And of course, it meant that now you get this situation where you can have 1,000 people at base camp. The Sherpas and the, the commercial companies actually fix a line of fixed rope just about up the entire mountain. And you've seen the, the photographs of where you've got, you know, 100 people going in a long queue going up the Lhotse face and so on. And I just thank goodness that I climbed before that happened. But I, I, I've got, I think, you, I accept the fact that this was a natural kind of almost inevitable evolution. I mean, you've had the same kind of thing on Mont Blanc and on the Matterhorn for years, where, where basically the, the guides have a steady living taking people up the mountain. It's very crowded. What do you do to change it? And, and that is the difficult thing. If you, for instance, say, well, you need less people on it, do you do that by price, in which case only the very rich can go? Do you do it by a lottery? Do you, but an awful lot of people who want to do it don't get the chance. And I think all those people who have actually been guided up the mountain have gone up their fixed ropes and everything else. Each one of those individuals has pushed that themselves, he or she, to the absolute limit. They've had an experience that they will remember for the rest of their lives. And I would never begrudge them that. And so it is, so I think it's, it's not something I want to do, but I've, I've done it so I don't have to. But I think it is, let it be, let it go, and then people have their own choice. Final question for me, and then we'll open it to the floor. Let's talk about something you've not only done once, but twice. What does the old man of Hoy mean to you? Oh, the old man of Hoy means a huge amount in so many different ways. Um, I made the first ascent of the old man of Hoy in 1966. And in a way, it was a kind of catharsis for me, in the sense that 
I just face, I think, the, yeah, the greatest tragedy anyone can have. Um, I'd lost my, my younger son, and, or my only son at that stage, Conrad. And I was aware at the time in Ecuador, I was doing a lot of um, photojournalism at that time. And he was um, up in Glasgow with Wendy, my wife, and uh, she was staying with friends. And she was actually practicing, she was a very good folk singer, and she was practicing that day for a gig she had that night. And she felt completely secure because um, Mary, our friend, had five children. And they were on the big garden, and they were all playing in the garden, and the team 100% safe. There's a little stream down the bottom of the garden, and little Conrad went off. He was an adventurous little soul and he must have fallen in and sadly was drowned. And then just a few weeks after that, Tom Patey, who was one of my great climbing players, one of the great characters of, um, of British mountaineer, brilliant Scottish climber, doctor at Ullapool. And Tom said, look, I've got this plan to try to climb the Old Man of Hoy, which is an unclimbed and the tallest sea stack in the British Isles. Would you like to come with us? And I almost said no. And Wendy said, no, look, go on, go and do it. It'll do you good. This was just about six weeks after Conrad's death. And so I did. And it was wonderful. And it helped me. And, uh, and we climbed it. And then, of course, the next year, 67, there was that huge um, outdoor broadcast when there was Joe Brown and Don, and Joe Brown and Ian McNaught Davis and two of Doodle Haston and Peter Crew, two of brilliant young climbers, and Tom and myself. And so we did all of that. So that's so I'd climbed the Oman of Hoy back then. And then in 2014, once again in the yeah, behind uh, another huge personal tragedy for me when I lost my, my wife Wendy to motor neuron disease and, um, and it was Leo Holding who's one of our most brilliant young climbers today and Leo said and we're friends and he said look how about us going and celebrating and reaching the age of 80 you climb the Oman of Hoy, you'll be the oldest, and he at that time was the youngest, and he'd been, his dad had taken up when he was 14 or 12 or something. And so, once again, I, I wondered, it was just after Wendy's death, and, and I did, and it, once again, was a huge help to me. I was very, very unfit, very tired, I slipped a couple of discs and actually I've suffered from it ever since but that was a great experience too and um, and I felt yes and it I think it summed up my philosophy of life to a degree is that I think I've always believed in living in the present and looking to the future and yes, we learn from the past. We learn from the success of past experience. I learned a huge amount from the support that Wendy gave me over all those years, enabling me to go climbing. But you need to live into the future too. And that's what it meant to me. Beautifully put, Chris. Um, Chris wouldn't be here today were it not for the fact that two of his friends are sitting in the front row and we were able to, and for a number he, the gentleman gave us, call Chris's new wife, Loretto. So can we just have three cheers for Loretto? Hip, hip. Hip, hip. 
Hip, hip. Thank you, because without her, Chris wouldn't be here. The triumph and the tragedies of Chris's life are writ large on this extraordinary book, Ascent. I was going to open questions to you guys, but I'm afraid because Chris was late, we have to run on with the, other, the event that follows. So can I propose this, that as a mass of people, you move from this space to the bookshop, buy your book, and wait in line to get Chris to sign, and he will answer your question there. I'm sorry that we've had to foreshorten this, but Chris, can, first of all, can I say thank you so much for coming. Thank you for writing the book, because it's a real treasure. And ladies and gentlemen, would you please thank Sir Chris Bonington. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much. I'm sorry. Well...